2: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and I am your host today. Today, I have Ashley T. Rubin on the show to discuss her new book, Rocking Qualitative Social Science, An Irreverent Guide to Rigorous Research, to be released in August 2021 by Stanford University Press. Welcome, Dr. Rubin.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Excellent. What inspired you to write qualitative social science? What brought you to this book?
1: So there are kind of two answers. So one is how it how it actually started, um, and basically it all started when I got into rock climbing when I was living in Canada. Uh, so I started reading books about um, famous expeditions, climbing expeditions, climber biographies, and watching climbing videos. And then um, just kind of on a whim, I started going to a local climbing gym and really got into it. And as I was just kind of getting into climbing, I realized how many useful analogies and metaphors to were in climbing that apply to mostly my writing, but increasingly I started to see how it applied to research as well. Um, And so I started kind of like tweeting about it just a little bit and making some notes to myself. I keep a private blog where um, I kind of like write down ideas that I want to like just work out or explore, keep track of. Um, And pretty soon I started writing a a chapter just to kind of see what happened. Um, And then I started realizing, wow, I think there might actually be something to this. Um, And then just for fun, uh, I drafted a table of contents, um, and then as I kept doing that, I just kept realizing, like, I, I think there's a book here. Um, and so once I kind of got enough confidence, I, I then sent the, um, I, I wrote up a book proposal and sent it to some friends um, to ask what they thought, and when they were uh, enthusiastic, I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to do this. Um, so it really started as a whim. Um, but the kind of second part of the answer is um, – kind of what was the underlying like drive. And, and for that, I think um, like part of the reason why um, I was able to do it so quickly and like what really kept me going on it was that I, I just had a lot of pent up annoyance about advice that people would give about qualitative methods and the way that methods are, are sometimes um, taught in, uh, in our classes or um, the way that people would critique qualitative research. And so I just kind of had this like whole kit of uh, complaints that, that I had that just kind of like drove me along. Um, and this really came to a head around the same time that I was I was um, just getting into climbing. I was teaching qualitative methods, um, and I had been for several years, um, and I kept getting really frustrated with the text that I had assigned and with some of the the other supplementary supplementary readings that I was assigning. And I realized this recurring pattern. Um, I kept kind of arguing with the text or just saying, like, this represents one approach, but there are others. The author is presenting this says like, this is the only right way, but but that's not the case. Like, there are others, and it felt weird to be assigning a text where it was like, this is the only right way. Um, and so I had designed the class to try to um, kind of convey that there were several different established ways of doing qualitative methods, but the text I was assigning weren't doing that. They were just kind of saying, this is how you do it. And because I kept disagreeing with them um, and kind of like trying to carve out the space for another way of of doing research um, that was more consistent in how I like to do it and what I've seen other people do successfully. Um, But it wasn't quite represented in in the text that I was assigning, um, with the exception of of some of the um, ethnographic texts that I was assigning. Um, And so it took me a while to kind of figure out what exactly was going on and to be able to articulate all of this. But I think that was like, Really, the the real motivation um, in uh, in getting this uh, this book written.
2: Excellent. And in this book, you you talk about dirtbagging. bagging, and uh, as it as it pertains to qualitative research methods, uh, I think this maybe uh, ties into uh, one of your frustrations about ethnography and the way that uh, uh, the way that not only ethnography but qualitative work is often presented uh, in some of the existing. Uh, qualitative textbooks. That is that uh, it, it's messy. It, it, is that what dirt bagging, bagging kind of means?
1: Yeah, sort of. Um, so, uh, so to kind of step back, um, a dirt bag is a term of endearment for rock climbers, especially the really scruffy ones in the nineteen sixties. Um, and so, uh, these are like these really countercultural guys. Um, it was at the time like all white dudes um, in this uh, very uptight days of you know beaver cleaver and all that. Um, because they're basically squatters hanging out in California's Yosemite Valley and pioneering um, climbing techniques in uh, in North America. At the time, climbing was more established in Europe. It was kind of, um, I would say, associated with, like, upper class people. But it was more mountaineering, like climbing in the snow on really big mountains um, with, like, picks and things like that, um, as opposed to, like, climbing up a rock base. Um, and so this wasn't really done in North America. It was and so it was associated with these kind of like low class, like countercultural, eventually like drug heavy culture as well. Um, and so like uh, these kind of these men are are kind of pushing the boundaries of what's socially acceptable. And when I was writing the book, um I kept struggling for what to call the approach that I was describing. Um, because it wasn't just ethnography, it wasn't just grounded theory, it wasn't just inductive um, work. It, it can apply to these, but there's also types of this work that it doesn't apply to. And there's also like deductive and non ethnographic work and stuff that it also applies to. So I kept looking for a label. And just as kind of a shorthand, I, I used dirt bagging um, as my kind of like quick and dirty um, label, but it eventually stuck because I couldn't think of anything else. And increasingly, it just seemed exactly perfect because. Um, the stuff that I'm describing is, is often like it, it felt very deviant and it's um, usually techniques that you're sometimes told not to do, at least by certain camps. And it turns out that actually a lot of people do it. So in the same way that like climbing today is seen as kind of weird by some folks, um, but it's actually really common. Um, in the same way, this approach to qualitative methods is kind of deviant, but also kind of quietly common, just like uh, rock climbing today. Um, and so I, I kind of, uh, kept going to that and I'm, um, in doing so I'm, I'm, kind of taking a page from Krista Luker, um, because in her book, uh, salsa dancing through the social sciences, um, she describes her approach to qualitative methods as salsa dancing, um, and her type of researcher is salsa dancing social scientists. And so I figured if Luker could do it, then I could do it too. So I refer to my dirt bagging methodologists, um, or dirt bagging social scientists. Um, and so the label just kind of, um, stuck because I couldn't come up with a better one and, um, and it just seemed perfect. Um, so like at the end of the, at at the end of the day, it's basically, um, this approach to research, um, a style of research, a way of conducting it or using it or analyzing it or criticizing it that calls for flexibility, um, basically across the board. It requires recognizing that there are wrong ways to do research, but there are many right ways. Um, and it's that feeling of kind of skirting the boundaries of what's considered normal or allowable um, is kind of what I'm trying to emphasize when I use this this dirt bagging um, label.
2: And then just to say that that uh, climbing as research is not always linear, particularly qualitative. Uh, finding yourself backtracking and going to earlier stages when you don't have enough literature uh, to draw from and and explaining or interpreting the the results that you have, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, it's definitely like this, this nonlinear um, approach. And so like, within climbing, um, like, it, just as you said, like, you know, sometimes you're going to go up the wall, and then you have to like, get back off the wall and start again, kind of get a better vantage point, um, you know, maybe train some more, do some meditation or whatever, and then like, you can go at it again. Um, so yeah, so climbing is just like, full of metaphors for um, kind of figuring out how to how to go about it
2: in an earlier episode, I interviewed uh, Jeffrey Kidder on parkour in the city.
1: And this
2: reminded me a lot of uh, tracking vertically rather than horizontally across the land. So uh, it's definitely interesting.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And definitely, like, I I think there are a lot of other um, kind of sports and um, kind of athletic ventures and not even just athletic ventures, I'm sure, like artistic ventures, too, um, where, like, there are just a lot of, metaphors that help us to like make sense of our our research and that we can kind of borrow borrow from and and um, kind of grow strength from so with this
2: with this analogy uh since we now have come to the conclusion that not all research will take place in a linear approach how does one begin this qualitative approach to social science knowing that
1: So I think the process really starts in different places for different people, Um, and I think this is kind of like one of the hallmarks of of being a dirtbagger, is that there really isn't just one one path um, or one way of doing it. So I would say a lot of us start with an idea, like just a really nascent idea that we want to explore, and it might not be developed at the outset. And so for us, the challenge is to figure out how do you take that idea and develop into something that other people recognize as rigorous, legitimate, and worthwhile. Um, and along the way, as you're kind of trying to figure that out, there's a lot of kind of playing around, checking things out, kind of seeing how we feel about our data, not like in a political way, but more like paying attention to what parts of our data seem interesting or confusing and following those leads. Um, but with, as with any uh, rigorous uh, research project, at some point you have to articulate your research question. Um, and I use a fairly broad understanding of a research question, and I argue that you can basically turn any research in, interest into a research question. Um, And then you need to methodically and systematically go about um, how you think about how you're going to measure and investigate things to to answer that question. Um, So, for example, I argue that um, you have to think about case selection um, and that case selection is going to be relevant for any project, uh, whether you think of your study as a case study or not. Um, And then you need to justify your case. And then once you start collecting your data, then you need to think about how you're doing it, um, what you might be missing and ultimately what your limitations are and how to accommodate them. Uh, and then, like, what you can do to shore up those limitations. Um, so it's, it's uh, like, I, I kind of describe this as a linear process, but at the same time, like, I want to emphasize that, you know, it, it's not linear. <laughs> uh, you know, like, you might inadvertently collect some data and realize you have something worth pursuing. Um, and, like, you haven't even formed your research question yet. Um, or you might articulate your research question after you've collected your data Um, Or you can like uh, better identify what your research question is. You might change your research question after you've collected your data um, or even after you've analyzed your data. Uh, You also might have like spinoff projects that don't necessarily need a research question because while you were analyzing your data for your original project, you developed a critique of the literature based on that data um, and your systematic analysis of it. so, basically, you can, um, you can have like all these different things happen in the course of um, kind of thinking about your, your project, collecting your data, and analyzing it. Um, and of course, ideally, uh, you're going to have more than one data source. Um, and so that introduces like a whole bunch of non-linearity as well, because um, you don't just go through the research steps once, you're going to kind of rinse and repeat. So you might read this set of documents and analyze them, and then read another set of documents, and then you realize you need to go back to the first set of documents. Um, which then lead you to investigate. There's another set of documents. Uh, so kind of just getting comfortable with that non-linearity, I think is a big part of the process. Um, so while we can kind of look to the overall um, kind of research process that's laid out for us, of like, um, you know, research question, data collection, data analysis, and write-up, I'm just kind of recognizing that that's kind of um, like, that's kind of our base camp. You can come back to it, uh, but you're going to do a lot of like back and forth. Um, and it's, uh, it's not like, you know, it's you just follow the the arrows. There's going to be a lot of uh, uh, curving arrows instead that take you kind of back and stuff.
2: So you're telling me that I can start by writing a research question and I can go back and revise it if my if, if what I'm finding doesn't necessarily align with the, the research question that I have and, and I don't have to abandon it altogether.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, like with my um, my dissertation, I I was halfway through my data um, collection and um, an initial analysis when I had to completely change my research question, um, and thankfully I was able to salvage a lot of the the data I had collected and analyzed. But um, for that one, I completely just did a new one. Um, but in other cases, you might just like tweak it a little bit, or you might say, you know what, this is actually a project that I'm going to come back to, and right now I'm going to kind of carve off this chunk, and then you know I'll when I'm. I'm ready, I'm going to come back to this bigger question or something. So there are a lot of um, possibilities. Excellent.
2: Is there there any time that the research design really matters, that it's important, that it's uh, crucial to follow a linear approach?
1: Um, I would say research design uh, definitely matters differently depending on the type of question you have. So I would say most dirtbaggers are interested in very broad research questions, in which case your research design is something that you're going to actually kind of come back to towards the end of, of your project. Like you always want to kind of think about it. You always want to think about your limitations, but a lot of the heavy lifting might come in the kind of later part of it. Um, on the other hand, if you have like a really narrow research question, if you're interested, say in the effect of X on Y um, or something like that, um, and it's kind of a, a very narrowly focused um, question, um, then in that case, research design matters a lot more at the at the front end. So it's Uh, research design always matters. It's just more like at what point do you have to do the heavy lifting? Is it at the beginning before you ever touch your data, before you collect your data? Um, Or is it the sort of thing where you can kind of like, uh, you know, collect some data, see what happens, and then kind of collect some more data? um, Or, you know, is it the other way around? So I think it it comes down to the type of research question you have. If you're kind of out there trying to figure out like, how do I get a handle on this thing? What's going on? I have no idea, so I'm going to keep it really broad. Or is it I want to I have a very specific idea of what I'm trying to go for and it's um, kind of the relationship between these two things for example um, or any other kind of um, narrowly focused research question that's when um, research design in the front end uh, is really important so like in that case for example um, if they're interviewing people you you really want to nail down your research question um, and your your research design and like your interview questions before you interview anybody because if you kind of change midstream, uh, that might pollute some of your data. So that sort of um, type of question where you like really care about the relationship between two variables, um, I would say that's where you have to be like a lot more careful at the front end. But the types of questions I like, you just kind of like go in and make a mess of your data and see what happens.
2: So an extension to that is, is how would we write up such a, uh, such a research methods section to uh communicate the design because i think that's an important part of the write up uh no matter what we do i think it's maybe important to figure out a way to communicate it so that others could uh go out and and uh, do the same study it, it, is that also an important part of the uh, of the research design
1: so I would say um, writing up your your data methods um, is always really important. Uh, and in terms of whether or not you, um, you want to write it up in such a way that you expect people to replicate it is a different question because I would say that there's a lot of type of research that we do that is just, it's not replicable. Um, so, for example, if I go out and um, I'm living in Hawaii and I go and do a study of, of downtown Waikiki, um, especially like right now, say, you know, post-pandemic, things are sort of opened up. Um, if somebody were to try to replicate that study a year from now, it would be completely different. Um, they might be looking at different things. They would be seeing a different context. Even if they try to like retrace my steps and go exactly to the same places at the same times that I was, um, things would be different. And I would argue that even if I went back and tried to replicate my study, I would still get different findings. which is uh, kind of a a thing that sometimes people get confused about is like, well, if you can't replicate your research, then, you know, is it kind of meaningless? Is it, is it worth um, worthless essentially? Um, And I would say what we, what we kind of um, do really well um, in doing with qualitative research is uh, trying to develop concepts um, and kind of uh, theories of understanding things um, kind of at this broader level, um, which is kind of why you can kind of be a little bit more messy um, with your stuff. So Um, What I might be seeing in Waikiki um, might lead me to thinking about a larger concept. And that larger concept might be there the following year as well. It also might be in any other kind of semi-urban shopping area um, that anybody else could see. But the the exact details are going to be different. Mm. Um, And that's the thing that I think people sometimes forget is that, you know, like, okay, so I saw 25% of people doing blah, blah, blah. But somebody else is like, well, I saw, you know, 40% of people doing blah, blah, blah. Um, that's a you know statistically significant difference but you know for, for our purposes what we care about is, is the concept not the exact details of something um, if we're looking at this kind of like broad approach whereas if I'm actually interested in a, a narrower question like what is the effect of X on y or something like that then those narrower um, kind of detail issues um, can become more important um, going back to the write-up issue um, I think it's uh, always important to write up your um, your research design um uh, I think the, the kind of tricky thing that, um, that sometimes gets kind of um, miscommunicated is um, you might write up your research design after you've done your, your data collection, basically. Um, or you might write your research design before your data collection. And those are kind of two very different approaches to how things um, are going to go. And for a lot of type of dirt bagging research, you don't know what your research design is going to be, the, the final research design, until like basically you're all the way done. Um, because for example, you might be like, oh, there's this other data set that I have to, to look at, or, you know what, I have to go back and reanalyze this other, um, this other set of documents or something, or I need to bring in a whole different type of data looking at another case or something. Um, so it's kind of, uh, you don't know what you're getting into until it's all over. Whereas with, um, other types of approaches, you can basically write up your research design before you've even collected your data and not change a thing. Um, and so it all comes down to, um, like what your goals are.
2: And taking really good notes to be able to remind you of the process that you went through in order to create that, that research design so that when it is time to to write the research method section, that, that it's accurate.
1: Exactly. Field notes are super important. Yes.
2: So, um, talking about field notes and talking about cases, what research designs do you think count as case studies?
1: I would say basically um, a lot of research projects that don't traditionally fall under the banner of case study are actually case studies. Um, so case studies can be like single cases or multiple cases. Um, and so in that sense, you almost always have a case study of some kind. Um, so I like to use the example of sentencing disparities studies from criminology. I used to do that research and I still really like that, that literature. Um, so a lot of these studies are based on data sets from say Maryland or Pennsylvania or Florida or the fifth dis- district um, for like federal cases. And each of these are jurisdictions. Um, and so these jurisdictions are cases. They might be like state level or district level, but at the end of the day, they're cases, um, even though they might have data sets of like 100,000 cases or, so, uh, um, you know, like trials <laughs> to, to avoid using the same word. Um, or you could get like a national sample, um, but that would also be a case study because your national sample, um, assuming you're in the United States, would be a case study of the United States. And I think um, it's useful to think about research in this way um, because we always have to think about the relationship between the case and the broader population. Um, So for example, if sentencing disparities um, theories are accurate, we should be able to offer some sort of scope conditions that explain why our theories do or do not account for similar findings in, say, Lithuania or Chile um, or the 19th century, uh, if we're, you know, sticking with the United States, for example. or even more locally, if we're only looking within the U.S., we need to remember that our study of Pennsylvania is not necessarily going to be representative of the whole United States, even if we have a random sample of cases from within Pennsylvania. So the strategic point here is um, kind of also because you'll you'll sometimes hear people using quantitative logic criticizing qualitative research as, oh, well, you're only looking at one case. but there are a lot of layers of, of misunderstanding that go into that critique, but one of them is to, to kind of realize that qualitative researchers aren't the only ones doing case studies. Excellent. Uh,
2: does, uh, so uh, I think one of the things that uh, I think of when I think of uh, case studies and when I think of the difference between quantitative and qualitative uh, is, is using the metaphor of an onion. I, I think that uh, both quantitative and qualitative uh, research can be thought of as, as, as one case just being a starting point uh, to further develop into future studies. So uh, each individual case is valuable in, itself, in itself, but beyond, beyond that is where the real value comes from in pulling several different studies together uh, to make sense of the phenomenon that is taking place. Is that, uh, is that part of this whole idea of case as well?
1: Um, So I definitely agree with that. I mean, um, I think there's sometimes kind of too much emphasis placed on a single study of like, oh, this finding found that, you know, taking or drinking coffee is good for you. And then this other study found that, you know, drinking coffee isn't good for you. Um, And like, you know, that that really doesn't help us. It's kind of like looking at crime statistics, uh, just at one year instead of like looking at long term trends. So I think that it's always important to kind of look at the broader picture of like, you know, what's the state of knowledge on this particular topic? What are the, the other studies that are done that are related and kind of what can we learn from um, from thinking about them together? Um, but I think part of it is also just um, kind of recognizing that different approaches to research, different um, kind of epistemologies, quantitative and qualitative, have um, they can sometimes have different goals. And even within these different epistemologies, there can be different goals um, within them. So they're you know, some, um, some quantitative papers where they're doing theory testing, but there, um, you know, other, there are qualitative papers that are also doing theory testing. Um, And so kind of just recognizing the, the kind of rich diversity of what these different approaches can offer, um, I think is also really important.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Depending on the based on the research question, right? It kind of goes back to that. Which is the best approach to study? What is what it is the researcher wants to know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, there's no way I could answer the research question in my book with quantitative methods. Like, it just for so many reasons it wouldn't work. Um, Likewise, there are certain questions I would just never try to use qualitative methods for because that it's just that's not what they excel at.
2: So we go to our next question about fieldwork. A case of one. What does it mean to do fieldwork?
1: Yeah, so um, so I like to define field work uh, broadly. Um, this is kind of a, a pattern um, in this book. I like to define things broadly if it helps to shift our perspective. Um, so, usually, what people mean by field work is going into the field, um, meaning out of their office or out of their home, especially for observing people or interviewing people. But I mean any time that you're collecting your data, even if that means you're sitting at your computer um, and you're you know, not out in a traditional field. Um, I count collecting data as basically field work. And I do that basically to remind people that if you're collecting data, um, even if that means downloading a data set, there are certain field worker habits that become relevant, like field notes. So taking notes on how you collected your data, like where, when, um, but also taking notes about yourself. So for example, if I'm in the archive and I'm getting tired, um, I know that that's gonna impact my data collection. I might be less willing to write something down or to count something um, as uh, as relevant, just so I don't have to go through the hassle of writing it down, because um, I know like that's just that's going to you know subconsciously affect my um, my work. So later, when I'm analyzing the data and I start realizing there's a pattern, I can check: um, is this pattern just when I was getting tired and I was getting sloppy, or is this a real pattern? And so by taking notes about like how you feel when you're you're um, taking your data collection, that can help you to kind of see if um, patterns that you see in the data are things that you've imposed because you're the instrument of the data collection, or if they're they're real, um, you know, to the extent that things are real. <laughs> um, because basically we're we're human. Um, this sort of cha- challenge will um, happen from time to time where, you know, our our humanness gets in the way of our data collection. Um, and the point is to make sure that we're aware of it and not to let it bias our sampling or even our data analysis later on. So, um, Like, for example, if you're interviewing somebody, if you were tired that day, um, maybe you kept yawning or your face looked a little pinched, pinched, um, you know, might you be giving off signals to your interviewee that might be kind of not getting you the data that you would have gotten if you, you know, this, especially if you're comparing that data to another day when you were actually like bright eyed and bushy tailed, um, you know, that's, that might be something you're imposing on the data, not something that's actually, you know, would have been in the data in a perfect world. Um, So you can't help but those sorts of things happen, but you can take note of it. um, So you can at least take it into account when you're analyzing your data. Or if you have time um, and the ability, um, you might go back and kind of recheck. Uh, So if you're at the archives, you might go back and recheck the documents you're looking at on the days that you were tired, for example. Um, So I would say that these are things that are common in certain types of qualitative methods, um, but they're not so common in others. um, And so I, I think it's important to kind of Um, raise awareness about field worker kind of methods across the board for all types of qualitative methods. Um, And arguably you could, you could extend this to other types of um, data collection. It's not just qualitative, but it's I would say it's most relevant in qualitative methods because so often we are the instrument of data collection.
2: Excellent. It sounds very familiar to what I do as a, as a media analyst. I go to the media and uh, whether it be newspaper or YouTube and draw accounts that uh, are made by the media about these different festivals that I'm currently studying. And one of the things that I have to be cognizant of are those exact things that you mentioned. Uh, am I tired? Are there distractions that are taking place around me? I was, um, I was trained uh, to do this under the bias of what is called bracketing, and uh, just making uh, notice uh, as myself as the uh, object of. Conducting research, uh, I definitely think that it's important to uh, know not only what's going on around me in the media, but also what it what is going on with me as the researcher um, doing
1: the study. Yeah, that's awesome. Exactly.
2: So the next area, which is uh, an extension, I think of fieldwork, because uh, you know, within within fieldwork, I think that uh, supplementary. Content is often also used to um, add to the reliability of the research that is being conducted. But is content analysis. What is that?
1: So uh, content analysis is another one of those terms that means different things to different people. Um, I've heard some definitions that are totally different from what I mean. Um, but basically, it's a term that I and others use for coding your data, um, usually text, like documents, field notes, interview transcripts, that sort of thing. And it's the process of putting tags on certain clumps of words um, or sometimes whole documents to identify themes in your data. Uh, this is often associated with grounded theory, um, but it's not limited to that. So um, in particular, I'm following the the footsteps of scholars who like the use of, of content analysis, but don't think it's necessary to put on blinders and kind of forget that there are theories out there that are shaping our, our, our thinking. So in the original version of grounded theory, you're kind of supposed to let it entirely come from your data and kind of try to to the extent possible, kind of forget um, you know, preconceptions or theories or um, kind of from our experiences and that sort of thing. And um, I, like many others, think that's that's impossible to do and you know, in some cases just wholly undesirable. Um, but the tool is still really useful of kind of going through and, and tagging the data in this way. Um, and so this kind of lets there to be some flexibility. You can let the categories come from the data and nothing else, or we might look for categories based on the literature we're familiar with as long as we don't shut our eyes to other categories that might be in the data. So it's kind of a whole spectrum of of how you can do this and where these categories um, or the the themes or the tags come from. So, for example, um, in my dissertation work, I was coding these annual, annual reports for a 19th century prison. And initially, I was looking for justifications of punishment, like retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation, and so on. And just like anything that these prison administrators would say about why we're using punishment or sorry, why we're using prison um, what the goals of incarceration were and that sort of thing. Um, because that's what my original research question was about. Um, but over as I was doing this, I realized, um, like, there was actually a lot of other interesting stuff. And because I was doing content analysis in in this way, um, I didn't limit it to just the justifications of punishment. I coded basically everything that I thought could possibly be relevant and some stuff that, you know, seemed irrelevant. Um, and one of the things that I, I got from doing this kind of broader approach, um, was to realize just how insecure these prison administrators were and how much time they spent kind of in this defensive posture, uh, defending their prison against critiques. Um, and that became much more interesting and important to me. And um, and that became like the, the basis of my dissertation and later my book. Um, and so uh, that's an example of like one of these ways of, um, you know, kind of how you can approach um, content analysis. On the other hand, um, some people do this like kind of, it's only from the data and you don't allow any, um, any other categories to come in. Um, and sometimes if you're doing kind of a more qu- quantitative approach where you're going to use your content analysis for quantitative analysis, you might go ahead and impose those categories, but still kind of keep your eye out for other things.
2: And, uh, one of the things that, uh, you were talking about there, I think, uh, uh is analytic m- memos. Is, is that right? Is that the part where you start to develop, uh, themes that come from the content that, uh, uh, is being used for the study?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so analytic memos are are basically like field notes, um, but I kind of think of them as field notes for the analysis phase. Although truthfully, I, I often lump together um, field notes and analytical memos because um, for me, they're, they're basically the same thing. It's just uh, analytical memos can sometimes kind of, um, they're more common in the analytical phase. Um, and they're also really helpful for the writing phase where you kind of start to put together the bigger picture. Um, but basically, an analytical memo is uh, writing down your insights, your questions, your confusions, um, as well as other feelings you have in reaction to your data as you're analy- uh, analyzing it. And of course, like some of this might show up in your field notes because you're going to have these same sorts of questions, confusions, insights when you're collecting your data. Like there's no period when you're never like you know analyzing your data, um, which is why there's kind of this fuzziness between field notes and analytical memos. Um, but usually analytical memos um, tend to be kind of um, kind of a higher level of, um, of insight, I would say, on average, not always. Um, so for example, you might have an analytical memo that says, okay, I just coded X number of documents and I'm seeing this recurring pattern here and I think I know what's going on. And then you kind of like record this note to yourself of what you think is going on. And then as you keep um, collecting your data... Um, you you know you might add to it and, and see like, okay, here's some other stuff here, or actually I'm seeing some conflicting evidence over here. Um, and so these kind of help you to kind of provide a framework or a place to kind of work through the thoughts that you're having as you're analyzing um, your data. Um, and then I, you can also, um, like this happens while you're doing the content analysis a lot of times, but you're also going beyond it. Um, like you're, you're not just tagging the text with, with labels, um, but instead, you're starting to put it into this larger pattern and context. Um, so sometimes you might use the results of your content analysis to start to create these, these analytical memos as well. Um, or you might kind of collect a, a group of quotations that are associated with a particular tag um, or code and start to kind of like put together your insights or what do I see from, from this collection of, of, of quotes. Um, so it's basically where you start to cl- uh, connect the dots. Um, so you might think about like what's changing over time or across conditions or across people or groups or documents and that sort of thing. Um, and then there are times where um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought for a second. Um, I think there there are times where um, sometimes you need to keep in mind that you're um, you're learning something from this particular text or you're putting it in combination with other um, other sets of texts. So uh, for example, you might have, um, you might have some insights that you um, you have because you're doing your interview transcripts, you're, you're coding those up, but they disagree with some of the official documents that you read previously. And so you can make a note of that in your analytical memos. Um, so uh, basically, while you're doing your content analysis, you write these analytical memos. And I argue that these are the two most important and basic tools you can use for qualitative data analysis. Uh, and that basically, like, these will get you through most of what you need. There's more sophisticated stuff you can do, but like... This will be like the most useful for the most people, I think. Um, And as you progress, these memos get richer and better, um, and then they basically become the first drafts of your paper, chapter, book, or whatever it is. um, Which of course makes writing a lot easier because later on you're not staring at a blank screen. You can basically copy and paste directly from your analytical memos and then just edit them.
2: Is that what Richard? uh, Yeah, not Richard. Excuse me. Is that what Clifford Garrett's refers to as Dick Rich uh, description?
1: Um, I would say uh, analytical memos help you to get to the the thick description. Um, I, I would say, um, it, so he defines it as basically, um, if you can get to the point where you understand what's going on, that you can kind of recognize meaning, that you're not just describing what happened, but you can actually put it in this broader context so you can kind of get to the meaning of what's going on, um, then that's... Uh, then that's um, Kind of, that's what he's describing as as thick description, and I, I think you can get there through a combination of triangulation um, and and these analytical memos. So like, as you start to kind of see, like, oh God, I understand now. Like, this is the meaning behind it. I get it. Um, the analytical memos are the perfect place to just kind of store that that kind of insight because if you just keep it in your head, at some point you'll forget (laughs) because that happens if you don't write it down, Uh, or at least that happens to me quite a bit. Well, Uh, the
2: writing it down, I think, uh, helps one uh, work through some of these uh, extremely difficult scenarios that we come across as cultural, uh, excuse me, as cultural, but also as qualitative researchers, uh, things that uh, we experience that uh, isn't always available in numbers.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: And this sounds like a real, uh, like a lot of work. Uh, I, I don't know that I could go through all of the readings and go through all of the experience and, and simply put it down all on paper and code the material. So are, are there some resources that are available for me uh, to do this analysis?
1: Yeah, so there are a bunch of different software packages that people use. Um, I used Atlas TI initially. I've also tried to do... Um, there are a couple of other ones. Um, so there's a lot of like snazzy software that you can use that, um, kind of does this, uh, I would say somewhat seamlessly, uh, they kind of vary in terms of which ones, um, do certain things really well. Um, there are also some downsides to it. Um, so for example, some of the software can be really expensive. Um, I would say the better the program, typically the more expensive it is. Although, um, your university might have a license agreement or kind of, uh, a coupon type arrangement so you can get it cheaper, um, or they'll have it like at your university library. Um, and then another kind of, uh, difficulty is some of the the better programs are harder to learn. So some are, are fairly straightforward. I would say like it, it takes a little bit of training, but not a huge amount. Um, but some of the better ones, like you're kind of better off if you take some sort of formal training in them, like not a, a semester long course, but you know, like a three hour thing or something. Um, so, uh, but again, like you can do some pretty basic stuff without a lot of the the startup cost or time, um, but the the more sophisticated stuff, because a lot of these packages, like they do a lot, <laughs> I would say it's just like um, other method software, like Stata or R, like there's a lot you can do um, with it, uh, but there's also some like really basic stuff that you can figure out pretty quickly. Um, but of course, sometimes the expense or the kind of sophistication or barriers that people um, might want something else. And so... Um, I spend some time in the book talking about other kind of options that are either free or built into what comes with a, a typical computer setup, um, or if they want to kind of experiment with different ways of doing things. Um, so, uh, so for example, um, just by preference, I use Excel a lot of times for content analysis. Um, I tend to use this for things where I'm not kind of really uh, kind of going deep with, with open coding. Um, if I kind of have already done a, um, a pilot study and I've kind of selected what are the... Um, what are the codes that I really care about? And then I kind of focus in on, on those. Um, and then I'll use different Excel documents for kind of um, different uh, combinations of codes. Um, so I'll just go through and like recode the same same thing over and over again across these different um, documents. That's kind of clunky, but it works for the project that I'm doing and it makes it easier to um, to collaborate with undergrads. Um, I've sometimes used um, a free blog uh, because you can kind of use tags um uh, because you know how, like, blogs come with tags, uh, so you can just kind of, like, tag an entry. Um, and so that works uh, fairly well, depending on um, the type of project. Uh, I've also actually used, um, there are certain tools within Google, like Google Surveys, um, where I've used that to to do some data entry and analysis. Um, and I've also used that with, with undergrads, because these are things that usually they're already familiar with, um, and it doesn't cost money, and it doesn't, uh, I don't have to, like, I don't have to pay for like another version of the uh, of the um, the software for them because you know if they're free they're you know it's free for me too, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah so there are a lot of different options for um, for doing this and of course in the old days they they use like you know paper and pen I think there are some people who still will um, use like bits of paper or print something out repeatedly but um, I usually try to avoid uh, that. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that I
2: use with Microsoft Word and one of the things that is uh, extremely helpful with that is with qualitative research, at least in my writing, I find myself using uh, quotes a lot to really bring home a message. So it allows me to uh, copy and paste that quote directly from the Microsoft Word file uh, when they're needed uh, to to, uh, include in my write-up. I also find myself uh, printing out the... Uh, the scripts that i have from the from the media sources that i use and then using uh pens pencils uh highlighters uh to draw out the themes prior to putting them into either a word document or a uh, or a microsoft excel uh spreadsheet that you were talking about earlier
1: yeah one issue i've always run into is i never have enough colors and i can't keep them straight when i do <laughs> yes
2: and uh, you have endless colors with, with uh, Excel and Microsoft Word. And, but uh, yeah, and then also it's just figuring out whatever, what, what coding method works best, which is a, a whole book and a whole interview in itself. Yeah. So, you know, qualitative analysis sounds to be a, a very refreshing uh, way about going uh, into uh, study a variety of different topics, but, you know, what What happens when quantitative people come and say that, uh, well, you can't make causal claims, or that it doesn't carry a similar weight uh, to what my quantitative colleagues do in their research?
1: Yeah, a lot of people will say that. Um, so I, it, it, this is actually a really big um, conversation within political science. I, I kind of think it was like there's this war between qualitative and quantitative scholars, both of whom are kind of... Um, uh, kind of staking the ground for, for causal inference, um, and, and causality. Um, so I, and so because they've been at this a lot longer, um, they have a bunch of, um, kind of tools and, and, uh, explanations, um, that I, I draw heavily on, um, as well as, uh, for my training in, um, econo- uh, econometrics, excuse me. Um, so for this, I, I would argue that you can absolutely make causal inference with qualitative methods, um. So I would say, first of all, just because so often qualitative methods is kind of getting to the core of what's going on and you can actually see what's what's happening. You, you don't have to worry about correlations in the data. You're, you're just actually seeing exactly the causal link that's that's driving something in a lot of cases. Um, you're, you know, like if, say you're just describing a mechanism by which something happened. That in itself is a causal statement. Um, you're showing like, here's the mechanism that caused this thing. So you don't even have to worry about inference in that case because, you know, so much of um, uh, caus- causality in qu- quantitative methods is causal inference as opposed to actual causality because you can't actually see the, the mechanism going on. Whereas for so much of qualitative methods, you can actually see the mechanism. You don't have to guess. Um, so, for example, um, I love this article by Beckett and Herbert uh, where they're, they're talking about the pains of punishment experienced by people on these trespass ordinances in Seattle. Um, so basically, they're told you can't go to this public park anymore, uh, because you you broke this um, civil order or something like that. Um, and so they're, they're describing how these civil ordinances are actually very much like punishment and experienced as punishment in, in various ways. Um, so for example, they talk about the deprivation of goods and services, which is a classic um, pain of imprisonment uh, that Gresham Sykes talks about. And so in their study, they're talking about how um, a lot of these people who are um, under these trespass ordinances are, um, are unhoused people. And as a consequence of the trespass ordinance, they're forbidden from going to places that they need to go, like the VA to get their um, their benefits, uh, or there might be this one park where people drop off food and clothes. And so because of these trespass ordinances, there's now this new layer of deprivation of goods and services that's totally unrelated to the fact that they're homeless, but is specifically because they can't go to these specific places because previously they could go there and now they can't um, explicitly because they're you know forbidden from from going there. Otherwise, they uh, w- will be incarcerated. Um, so you can basically see directly what's causing this de- deprivation. You don't have to guess. It's um, it's not a correlation. It's it's like it's actually happening. Um, So a lot of qualitative research does this where it drills down and you can see things happening and you can kind of trace the process um, and you don't have to worry about inference. Um, But there are other types of projects where you can't really drill down, like there's still a lot of hidden stuff. And so it's not necessarily obvious why something happened or why someone did something. And so in those cases, you do have to infer. Um, So there you have to rely on some tools of causal inference. and so what do you do when, you know, you want to strengthen your, your inference and like you, you think, you know, what's going on, but like, you know, it's still, you're not positive. And so you kind of need to like strengthen the case. Um, so for that, I outline a couple of different tools. So one is I really like typologies. So these can help you to sometimes rule out certain factors um, or variables, or they can kind of set you on the right path of actually this variable that you weren't even thinking about is really important. So for example, if the conventional wisdom is this particular variable accounts for this outcome, and then you create a typology kind of looking at the, the relationship between these different variables and, um, and different outcomes, uh, it might turn out that the reality is more complicated. And so a typology is a really nice way to visually demonstrate that and say, actually, we need to start looking for a different variable than the one that everybody thinks is, is relevant, because this typology just shows, I don't think it is, or at the very least, it's more complicated than like, a X you know, X causes Y. Um, but typologies can also help you to figure out newly important variables, um, because they can identify correlations, but then you have to go investigate them. Um, of course, you know, you can't just stop at the level of correlation. You have to go further and kind of trace the process by which, uh, you think this thing is causing this other thing. Um, and then they can also provide evidence of nonlinear causal patterns. Um, and so for this, you can turn to the logic of necessary and sufficient factors. Um, so something that might look like it's totally uncorrelated, totally unrelated. Um, actually is this this pattern um, that shows that something is like necessary but not sufficient or uh, sufficient but not necessary and, and so on. So typologies just have like a lot of different uses that help you to kind of um, strengthen the, the case and kind of direct you in the right direction to collect more data um, along the lines of, of whatever variables you, you turn up. Um, Another strategy I really like is uh, to look for counterfactuals. And here I'm borrowing from econometrics and the statistical theory behind why experiments let us make causal inferences. So um, in the qualitative context, basically, you want to look for similar cases where the original conditions are similar um, or the same, but the outcome is different. Um, And then you start to look at where the differences start to arise, like what goes wrong between the original conditions and the final outcome. Um, And of course, since it's qualitative uh, research, you, you explore the role of those different factors. Again, you're not just relying on correlations, but you actually trace what was the impact of this particular starting condition or this different thing that happened in the middle between the original and and the end. Um, And so you can kind of trace out like what, what causal impact something happened. Um, And then relatedly, because sometimes this will use your causal uh, or sorry, your counterfactuals, um, you can test out alternative hypotheses. Um, and I would argue that this is also just good research. You should always consider alternative explanations and be able to say why your preferred explanation is better or at least uh, comparable to some alternative um, explanation. And here, counterfactuals are also helpful for ruling out some of these alternative explanations. Um, but basically, if you can rule out other, other possible explanations, um, then your explanation, your kind of preferred explanation, looks that much better. Um, and then finally, I would say for all of these, basically the shakier you are in being able to claim this happened or this caused that other thing, um, the more of these extra steps you need to take. So if it's something that's like really on, on uh, unsteady ground with your kind of original data set, you really need to supplement that with additional data that uses these various tools to kind of demonstrate the causal relationship. So will,
2: will those strategies draw up uh, possibly from critics to, Particularly from quantitative side, to say uh, to question the generalizability of one's causal findings.
1: Um, I would say that some of these actually help um, with that with that argument because if you are looking at other cases, you can start to kind of pin down exactly how, if you're kind of focused on one case relative to a couple of other cases, how your one case is different and the exact extent to which it is generalizable or not. Um, But when it comes to these these critiques about um, generalizability, I always come down to what's the point of your research? Um, So in my book, for example, my uh, my book about Eastern State Penitentiary, um, my prison is absolutely not generalizable because it's this unique, deviant, highly criticized prison. Um, But the point of the book is not to be able to say, you know, this prison, um, you know, is uh, generalizable to other prisons, but to understand what are the dynamics going on in the field and actually by focusing on this deviant prison. You can kind of get a better sense of the insecurity that's permeating the entire field at the time. You just can't really see it in the kind of more typical prisons because it's not. It's like it's there, but you don't necessarily know to look for it um, until you do. And I didn't know to look for it until I saw this incredibly insecure uh, group of administrators. Um, and then like it was like the light bulb going on. Um, so I'd say, you know, what are the goals of the research? What's what's your research question? And so often our goal with qualitative research isn't to be generalizable it's um, or at least not at like an empirical level. It's more at a, at a theoretical level. So we're interested in kind of what does this tell us about society or about culture or about prisons or, you know, whatever. And so it's kind of getting to that theoretical level um, that higher level of abstraction where we can understand what the relationship is between um, kind of different things or, for example, if I'm looking at um, resistance, uh, it really doesn't matter if I'm studying my super deviant prison or if I'm looking at a Scandinavian open prison. Um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm kind of better understanding what's going on about resistance. Um, so it's a when you get a critic like that, um, remind them that you're, you know, your goals may not be the same as theirs. If they want to know what's the exact um, kind of impact of uh, say like uh, I don't know the level of urbanity um, on a particular court um, on like the, the sentence length or something and you want the exact answer with you know a standard deviation or something um, that's a very different project from figuring out you know why in general do people engage in resistance what are its consequences
2: Excellent and uh, thank you those are all helpful uh, pieces that uh, um, I hope will help others out who are listening to our interview uh, at a later time. Unfortunately, we're all out of, uh, all out of uh, time. So, there, But there is one yearning question that I have that uh, uh, I would like to end with. What are you working on now?
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I have a few projects in the works. Um, my main empirical project right now is looking at trends in research conducted uh, within carceral facilities. So um, basically when people go in and um, say interview uh, incarcerated people or do surveys of correctional officers and that sort of thing. Um, Because in the early 2000s, a number of prison scholars sounded the alarm that scholars had basically lost access to prisons, um, basically, as mass incarceration was was really getting underway. um, And that prison sociology, and especially prison ethnography, was dying. Um, 20 years later, that's patently not true anymore. um, But I was really curious if that was ever true. Uh, So I'm looking at dissertations going back to 1980 as this good measure of scholarly access to carceral facilities as well as interest in in, um, prisons. So I can explore changes um, in what's going on uh, in terms of the research that's done, the methodologies that are used and the sort of topics people are are looking at. Um, And then outside of that, um, my interest has been kind of torn between the two books that I'm writing. Uh, One is the history of prison that you mentioned um, where I'm looking at the history of prison from the beginning. Um, And that's kind of a crossover book to generate a conversation um, about why we do what we do, um, including the, the things that don't quite make sense. Uh, and the other is a sequel to rocking Qualitative social science. Um, and it's a, a guide on writing when you're a dirtbagging, social science, uh, scientists. Um, I, and it's basically, I had written like three chapters that I had to cut from the original book because it was getting too long. Um, and so this is those three chapters plus some other things that, um, that I've been thinking about. Uh, so I'm kind of going back and forth between these projects, uh, as, um, as my interest guides me, basically.
2: Excellent. Well, I look forward to having you on the show for your uh, next book on writing as a dirtbagger. I, uh, I enjoyed having you on the show today and, uh, look forward to a-, a continued friendship. Thank you
1: so much. This was fun. Excellent.
2: Again, my name is Michael Johnston. This is New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Have a great day.